Welcome to D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. I'm D.T. Kane, author of the epic fantasy series The Agersfar Saga and The Spoken Books Uprising. Each week, I read from one of my novels, discuss my writing process, answer your questions, and have general discussions about fantasy fiction. It's like a book club, except I do all the work for you. Find show notes, info about all my novels, and much more at dtkane.com. Here's the show. Chapter 4. Illiterate ink, Baz mumbled without thinking. What's that, speaker? Farston's eyes hadn't left Baz. They still carried that inexplicable sense of placid terror. But was there also now a hint of laughter in them? All the eyes in the room had once more joined Farston in fixating on Baz. Scribes help him. All he wanted was to be left in peace. First, it was the keepers at Tome cajoling him into a quest for the blasted declaimer's transcendence. Now, Deliritus was going to drag him off on some diplomatic nonsense. Thankfully, Liana interjected before Baz could say something that likely would have earned him a whipping, or worse. He's just honored by the invitation to your great city, Duke Farston, she said. Of course... Erstwhile's conservatory will also wish to send a representative to join the representatives from our sister conservatories in Enigma and Fortune that I'm sure will be attending the Congress. If you'll permit me to confer with the Master Restorers, I'm sure they'll have one selected in short order to accompany you. Farston waved a hand at Liana like one might swat at a fly that caused him mild annoyance. Liana scowled, but only for an instant. Then, if you'll excuse me, she gave another curtsy to both of the dukes, then gave Baz the quickest of looks as she exited. There may have been a hint of sympathy in her eyes. You honor our library, Duke Farston, Deliritus said after Liana had departed. I'll need some time to make adequate preparations, of course. So, with your leave, and my father's, I'll go see to that immediately. Of course, Duke Octavenal began. Certainly, Duke Farston said, cutting Octavenal off. The two men shared a glance. Then Duke Octavenal gave a nod, if a curt one, to Farston. The Lyritus looked uncertainly between the two men. Ultimately, he apparently decided silence was the only safe option. He bowed and began to depart. Delida started to follow him, but Duke Octavenal stopped her. No, you stay here. Duke Farston has requested the services of a creator to ease the strains of his long journey. Delida curtsied low in apparent submission, though the glance she shot at Deliritus seemed to plead that he intervene. The Torchsire heir only shrugged. Marquis Deliritus, you will be sure to rejoin us for tonight's entertainment, yes? It would be a shame for you to miss it. Deliritus stiffened for some reason, but when he turned to Farston, his face showed a smile. Of course, I wouldn't miss it. Giving another bow, Deliritus strode out of the receiving room. 
He moved with just the slightest limp. Bastion, with me, the lyricist said as he passed Baz, not looking at him. Was not one, but two dukes just steps away, Baz had no option but to comply. Swallowing a sigh, he settled for glaring at the lyricist's back as they exited the receiving room. They walked in silence, rocks trailing behind, ensuring Deliritus didn't leave his sight. As Baz had so explicitly experienced, the giant harbor's oath to protect Deliritus overrode all other considerations. The thought brought a tightness to Baz's chest that he forced away with a scowl. Rox was just a big, ugly brute. That was all. Not worth another thought. Deliritus finally stopped at the library's speaking room. It was set apart from the rest of the library. That way, if a spell ever went terribly wrong, the aftermath wouldn't threaten the rest of the building. Since their return from the trials, Deliritus had taken to locking the doors whenever he wasn't inside. The torchsire heir held out a hand to Rox, who wordlessly handed him a key inlaid with several shining rubies. Deliritus unlocked the doors, and Bastion followed him inside. Rox shut the doors behind them. Right then, Deliritus said. He often spoke as if all those around him were close acquaintances. But lately, whenever Baz was within hearing distance, Deliritus's voice carried a certain strain. Baz supposed that ought to give him some modicum of satisfaction. What with all the undeserved praise being heaped upon Deliritus by nearly everyone in the city for his performance at the trials, perhaps Deliritus was crumbling under the weight of his own lies. Yet, all thinking of the Torchsire heir's struggles actually did for Baz was bring a sour churning to his stomach. I presume you're just as dismayed as I am at this unforeseen turn of events, Deliritus continued, finally looking at Baz. Baz kept himself from meeting Deliritus's eyes directly, afraid what the Torchsire heir might see in them. For a reader, Deliritus had remained almost cordial toward Baz, even after their return from the trials. But whereas Baz had never received more than a sharp word or three from Deliritus before he'd gone to Tome, now the Torchsire heir had begun to punish Baz in subtle but taxing ways, everything from being locked in a dark room repeating prayers to the scribes to three days spent scrubbing fireplaces in the kitchens to dusting every nook and cranny of the receiving room twice over. Other speakers might count such punishments to be great mercies, but Baz found them almost as detestable as the knowledge that he needed to demonstrate submissiveness toward this fool in order to avoid further servile labor. It's not how I pictured spending the coming days, Master Deliritus. I expect not, but you heard my father. We've a duty. I presume I can depend on you to satisfy your obligations to this library? Deliritus's tone was innocuous, but Baz saw in Deliritus's eyes the true meaning of his words. I'll do what needs to be done so long as you do the same, Master Deliritus. 
the lyricist's lips flattened to a razor's edge, showing he too understood what Baz meant. You keep my secret safe, and I'll keep yours. We'll need to select our books for the journey, the lyricist said, both his innocent tone and accusing stare unchanged. We ought to take the book you brought back from the trials. What? That's a book of creation. You can't even... Deliritus trailed off, eyes narrowing. Baz shrugged, just thinking the Congress might like to see it. More like you wish for an opportunity to abscond with it and restore your criminal of a brother to full Deliritus. Deliritus and Baz both jumped, the booming voice echoing off the speaking room's stone rafters as if lightning had just struck a mountain. Rocks stepped between them, arms folded across his chest. The torchsire air looked at rocks with what was initially a glare, but then turned to more of a pout after trying to lock eyes with the massive man. You're the one with the penchant for truth, rocks. Obsession, more like. What exactly did I say that was inaccurate? The harbor just continued to stare from over the top of his leather mask, crossed arms rising and falling with the steady rhythm of his breathing. Deliritus finally shut his eyes, shaking his head and rubbing at the bridge of his nose. Fine, fine. I'd forgotten how you liked to cuddle Bastion, as if he didn't betray Deliritus. Deliritus's eyes opened, forefinger and thumb still pinching the bridge of his nose. This time, he managed to hold Rox's gaze a few seconds longer before he turned back to Baz. Well, if you don't intend to aid me in selecting the books for our journey, you can at least make yourself useful. We'll need feed for the horses, and a new cloak I commissioned is ready for pickup at the tailor down by Xavier Tower. Well, what are you waiting for, Bastion? Go! Baz glared in the direction of Deliritus's boots. Then, for some reason he couldn't name, Baz glanced to rocks. The big man gave him a nod that, from anyone else, might have been called encouraging. Baz scowled, then stomped from the room. He did his best to pull one of the double doors off its hinges as he exited, but only succeeded in straining his shoulder. That, of course, dropped his mood even further. Bloody burning books! Welcome back to the book club, everyone. Today is Sunday, August 14th, 2022. As I record this, which is episode four of season two of the podcast, and our 31st episode overall. Hope you all had a good week this week and enjoyed listening to chapter four just now. Uh, so my big news for this week is... Uh, got my draft of Declaimer's Stand out to my advanced readers and editor. Uh, that's book four of the Spoken Books Uprising, or part four of the Spoken Books Uprising, I should say. i uh, still been tweaking a few things uh, myself as well, even though I've gotten it out to uh, my advanced readers, mostly just tightening up some language and correcting a few stray typos. Um, you know, it's a fine line between... Uh, 
you know, over editing and, you know, actually making improvements. But uh, I am finding, um, you know, a fair number of sentences where I feel like I can say the same thing in fewer words, which is always a good thing. Uh, it's also amazing that no matter how many times I read something, those pesky mistakes still make their way through. Um, actually, just the other day, I found four misspellings of the word soldier. <laughs> uh, I, I think I had it spelled like solder or something, which I guess is I guess is a word. I don't know. It wasn't getting picked up as a misspelling. Uh, but I got that fixed. So, uh, you know, the uh, the ups and downs of, uh, of being an author here. <laughs> I guess also living in the uh, the age of uh, spell uh, spell check, right? You know, none of us can can spell anymore in our sloppy typing. We get away with it. So, ah uh, well. Um, also, as I noted in my newsletter this week, I had a lovely time visiting some family on Long Island last weekend. You know, there are few things I enjoy more than Long Island pizza and bagels, and uh, I certainly stuffed myself the gills with both of those so uh, definitely good to take some time uh, and recharge even when uh, you have kind of an ambitious schedule like mine, like mine you know between my day job and running my little media empire as I uh, kind of like to call it to my wife a little tongue-in-cheek here but uh, you know got a lot going on but good to take a few days <coughs> to uh, to rest up uh, and speaking of resting up, I also took a nice scenic train ride yesterday through western New York. Uh, it was a, a, an Ales on Rails train ride, so they had uh, they had a brewery on board that was handing out some samples. Um, so that was a that was a good time. Went uh, with my uh, father-in-law <coughs> and um, his wife and my wife. So. Uh, more good times to be had. You know, I can't believe it's already halfway through August, so still definitely trying to take advantage of what's left of the summer. You know, I wrote in my uh, <coughs> my journal a couple weeks ago to, you know, you know, get your work done, but, uh, you know, also make sure you're, you're taking advantage of the warm weather because, you know, here in western New York, it could be, could be snowing two months from now. <laughs> so, um, you know, I don't want to squander don't want to squander it so it's a fine line between working hard and not overworking so trying to trying to walk that tight rope here and uh, I think that's something important for all of us uh, to keep in mind it's uh it's easy easy to maybe get too caught up in your work sometimes and you know in the long run that's you know you're probably going to get less work done if you do that so so there you go but this is a fiction podcast not a self-help podcast so uh, <laughs> let's Let's get into our analysis here. It's been a few weeks since we did some analysis, so we're going to talk about chapters one through four here. And as I've been doing, I just, instead of writing a whole script, I just kind of outlined some highlights here. So, uh, you know, hopefully I'm not uh, stumbling over my words too much as I, you know, I'm not really improvising, but I'm just going off of notes. So uh, let me know what you think if you notice a substantial difference one way or the other compared to some analysis sections I did. Uh, last season for the Actus Trials, let me know. <clears throat> but we'll start off with chapter one and the very first line of the book. You know, I put some thought into my first lines, try to make them, I don't know if provocative is the right word, but certainly eye-catching. So, uh, blood coated Baz's hands like honey on a hot summer day. Um, what do you think? What do you think of that opener? Um, 
I think it certainly uh, certainly evokes multiple senses. I think you know you got you know touch with the stickiness and the hotness, and you, know, you can probably uh, smell you know smell what honey on a hot day. Uh, you know what that experience <clears throat> might be like. So you know, and probably the discomfort too of that. You know, if I'm sure everyone has had uh, something sticky on their hands at one point. Or another, so that's not always the most pleasant, and certainly as we get further in, we see it's uh, certainly not a pleasant experience Baz is going through. So let me know what to think about that opening line. <clears throat> you know, and obviously we have this speaker dying in a gruesome matter manner here, uh, you know, kind of like his blood seems to be on fire, almost got steam coming out of all of his orifices, and sadly this is, uh, this is good old Gar. We might remember Gar from back in... Uh, part one of the Spoken Books Uprising. He's the old retiree that Baz met a couple times down in the darkness. You know, he was apart from the rest of the retirees, kind of just off on his own, kind of this salty <laughs> old man who, uh, you know, I think Baz mentioned he kind of, uh, you know, appreciated. You know, you always knew what you were going to get with Gar. But uh, unfortunately, Gar has, uh, you know, passed on here now in, in an unfortunate manner. And we we learn uh, that this is actually the third death uh, in the past month of someone dying <clears throat> like this. You know, we have, uh, in addition to Baz there, um, Liana is there as well, and Tax, Baz's brother, is also there. I guess Liana was looking for something that she might be able to use to save Gar. She had her chest of medical supplies out, but uh, uh, to no avail, um, he passed away, and, you know, you know, she mutters, thank goodness this is only affecting retirees. So it's apparently only the retirees, the the blinded speakers who are no longer used, who are stuck down in the basement, that um <clears throat> that this afflicts. You know, of course, Baz gives her a dirty look because his brother is a retiree, right? And, you know, and she kind of mumbles an apology, and, and then she she goes off to try to clean the uh, clean the blood off of her that got on her from this dying. Uh, the dying gar <clears throat> here, um, you know. So just a reminder here that you know, in some ways, Baz and Liana are pretty close friends, but you know, they had certainly have conflicting uh, values here, especially when it comes to speakers' place in society and the retirees. So obviously, that point of tension is uh, you know going to keep popping up here, as we'll soon see in chapter two. Um. <clears throat> you know, so after Liana goes off, Baz and his brother have a discussion. We learn that all of the retirees who have died each had uh, tattoos, just like the ones that we saw Tax putting on himself uh, in the Actus Trials. You know, so Baz is like, you know, is this some sort of infection, Tax? Um, you know, it can't be a coincidence that they've all got the tattoos. Um, apparently, he's been putting tattoos on lots of Lots of the retirees, which is interesting, right? Because he's blind, you know. How is he How is he able to do this if he's blind? Uh, we do not know the answer to that at this point. Uh, but Tax seems pretty certain it's not an infection. He says he is careful to, um, you know, hold his needles to flame before he does the tattooing. You know, and Bass suggests, you know, well, maybe you should stop anyway. But, you know, he's like, I don't think I can stop. This is a, it's our small bit of rebellion you know, the speakers are kind of down here in a hopeless situation, blind and in the dark and all but forgotten. Um, you know, so he feels like he's giving them, a, you know, a little bit of a, you know, 
you know, sticking it to the man a little, I guess. You know, it's what else can they do? Um, and he does, you know, it's a high success rate. I've done this to a bunch of folks, and most of them haven't died. So, uh, you know, kind of still leaving it a little ambiguous whether it's the tattoos or not. Um, though Baz does note that he hasn't given more than a single tattoo to any of the retirees, whereas, you know, Tax's whole body is apparently covered in these tattoos now. And Baz actually, you know, briefly wonders to himself is, you know, is Tax maybe hoping. Uh, one of these tattoos will take him and, you know, provide a kind of, uh, you know, uh, mortal, <laughs> mortal exit to his dark prison here in the, in the sub basement. And obviously that, that idea really shakes Baz, you know, the idea of losing his brother, his only remaining family. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's tax trying to commit suicide by giving himself tattoos until one of them causes this, uh, this adverse reaction that's apparently going around the retirees who that have them. Um, so lots of questions here. Obviously, as we we start up with the book, I'll be throwing lots of questions out there, and then we'll get answers to some of these questions as we move through Declaimer's discovery here. Uh, so when are we? Um, is in comparison to the last book, we we learned from Baz. It's been about three months since they came back from the Actus Trials, <clears throat> so 90 days or so have have passed since we since we left off in the last book, and, you know, it seems like Baz is still kind of suffering some of the ill effects um, from the Actus Trials. We don't get a whole lot of detail, but he does mention that he still hears the voices in his head of, uh, you know, what's apparently the Dark Ones. Remember, we realized, or we learned anyway, that the Dark Ones are uh, imprisoned beneath Tome, uh, at the end of part one uh, of the Spoken Books Uprising, and Baz is apparently still hearing these voices. Um, so you can bet that's going to that's gonna have some significance here as we move on. Um, kind of the other thing that happens here is we, uh, we get a little reminder about the small book that uh, Emma gave Baz towards the end of part one. Uh, it's apparently, this is called A Brief, so remember, this is like, it's a, still a spoken book, but it is small enough to put, you know, put in a pocket, which is, you know, a big advantage potentially, right? If someone, uh, you know, if you're able to cast spells, but someone doesn't necessarily see that you have a, a book on you. Uh, apparently it's a book of creation, which is interesting because Baz is a destroyer. I mean, I guess that makes sense because Emma it was a creator, um, so she wouldn't necessarily be carrying around a book of destruction. Uh, and Baz has apparently read the book to Tax many times at this point, and Tax has it memorized. Though, interestingly, Baz is like, it seemed like Tax had it memorized after the first time I read it. You know, kind of incredible how quickly he was able to absorb all the text. Um, and apparently Tax's speaking abilities have not waned uh, at all. You know, Baz says, you know, even though he hasn't cast a spell, in uh, you know, in ten years since he was blinded, you know, as soon as we had this book of creation here, apparently he can start casting spells out of it again. You know, we see him heal Texas or Baz's hands with no problem because Baz's hands were burned from the the steaming blood coming out of the dying gar. Um, and you know, I guess this is interesting too. Of course, Baz hasn't seen his brother cast any spells in the past ten years, but does that necessarily mean he hasn't? Um, you know, he is a cuss. He can read and speak, so if he has a spell memorized, even though he's blind, he could potentially still be casting a spell. So, uh, you know, 
there's still a fair bit of secret, you know, a fair bit of mystery around Baz's brother. So, uh, again, something to keep in mind here. And I know um, I haven't I haven't had any complaints about this, so I'm just going to keep doing it. But obviously, well, probably giving some minor spoilers away here. I'm not a uh, uh, I'm not really like pointing out issues that are just like red herrings for you um, for the most part. So uh, just something to keep an eye on here with Tax's abilities moving forward. You know, it's, but it is interesting, you know, if, if Tax is so good at uh, speaking still that he was able to memorize these words after hearing Baz read them just once, you know, why did he keep having Baz keep reading the book to him? And Baz is like, well, it seemed like he was trying to teach me, which I didn't understand at all. Because, you know, I'm a destroyer, not a creator. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe this is just a, some, some brotherly effort at trying to do something for his little brother. Who, who knows? But, uh, you know, apparently Baz has a, some level of comfort with the language of creation now in addition to destruction. Um, I think that's kind of it for the analysis of chapter one here. Um you know, we also learn, you know, just kind of this reminder here of kind of the sad state the retirees are in, you know, as Baz kind of goes away to go see Liana, um, you know, Tex is like, oh, I'm going to stay here and say a few words for Gar because no one else is going to. So again, just kind of a reminder of the sad state, I guess, speakers in general, and particularly the retirees <clears throat> are in, you know, no one else is mourning Gar's death here. Um, okay. Uh, hold on, I'm just going to stop and restart the video so I don't have uh, another debacle like I did a few weeks ago with the power outage. So we'll be right back. All right, welcome uh, back uh, to the show here. Uh, moving on to Chapter 2. <coughs> um, Baz goes off to Liana's workshop down in the sub-basement, departing his conversation with his brother, um, you know, and the first thing we notice is how much more cluttered the workshop is now. Apparently, uh, Deliritus's victory in the trials means lots more attention for Torchsire Library, which means more people coming to the library for speakings, which means more books to repair, right? Um, because remember, as you read from books, uh, the ink, the power in the ink slowly degrades, and that's why you need a conservator to uh, reapply the ink to the books uh, to restore their their power. And of course, Liana is Torchsire Library's conservator, or a librarian is her official title, though we know she doesn't really like that because it reminds her of her relatively lowly station in the uh, hierarchy of conservators. Um, <clears throat> you know, and Baz is kind of uh, looking at Liana's book dragon statue, um, when she starts speaking to him, you know, and we quickly learn, you know, we kind of left off at the end of part one, you know, not really clear what the relationship between Liana and Baz was going to be as, as far as, you know, Baz sending the message to her via Aramir the book dragon. <laughs> you know, we learn she's still skeptical. You know, how'd you complete the trials on your own? You know, I think she, what she starts off by like saying something like, I still don't believe you, you know, because she sees Baz looking at the book dragon. Um, you know, and Baz is like, well, you know, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, he's like, well, how did you finish the trials without Deliritus? Or I think, oh, all on your own. He's like, well, I wasn't on my own. I had rocks, too. You know, and Baz, it's funny because Baz points out, you know, 
I think this is mostly accurate too. Maybe you could debate it a little bit. He's <laughs> like, the sad thing is, you know, my big secret, you know, his ability to to both uh, read and speak, uh, you know, really had nothing to do with him successfully getting through Tome, right? Like he didn't speak any spells um, in Tome, I guess, other than uh, the one that made him, uh, you know, silent so he could track the uh, the cityless slash uh, keepers to to undertone in the first place but didn't really use any spells at all um to complete the trials but still um you know obviously he cannot can't tell uh liana that he's a cuss because uh as much as they seem to be friendly with one another uh, maybe even something trending towards more than friends uh you know liana is still a conservator and they are very against uh any speaker who can read so Bess has to be careful around her but she's obviously skeptical which you can be sure is going to cause problems down the road here she's like really you found a book that cures blindness and that's like well i just found it in like a box buried under some rubble um <laughs> so um you know just keep an eye on that you know there's obviously some uh some good things going on between baz and liana but there's also some mistrust here as well you know we see the the bashful Baz around Liana too, which is the flip side here of her skepticalness. You know, she, uh, you know, was trying to clean the blood off of her shirt, and you know, Baz notices. You know, you know, her shirt is all wet and sticking to her in just the right ways, right? You know, Baz gets all bashful about that, and then uh, at one point, Baz is like, "Well, why would I lie to you?" And you know, Liana, uh, you know, maybe being a little flirtatious here. Well, you, you know, to impress me, of course. <laughs> And Baz, you know, like chokes on his tongue, trying to deny wanting to, to impress her. But of course, uh, denying wanting to impress her, uh, you know, that speaks to his true intentions right there, right? The fact that he is so eager to deny that. Um, but of course, the conversation quickly turns dark from there because um, <clears throat> they start talking about Yeltax, Baz's, Baz's brother, uh, you know, and Liana basically reveals, well, you know, he's stealing the ink from my workshop. That's how he's making these tattoos. You know, I don't know how he's doing it. You know, he's blind. <laughs> but, you know, I come down here, and even though I'm locking my cabinets, he gets in, and, uh, you know, my ink is missing. And he's like, she's like, someone's going to notice eventually because, um, you know, I have to order all this extra ink that I shouldn't have to. And uh, I guess we haven't discussed the uh, the ink economy here very much, but, uh, you know, ink is obviously a, a relatively rare commodity. We learned in part one that only the conservators know how to make it. So you can you can imagine that a sudden spike in her ink orders uh, is going to get uh, someone's notice sooner rather than later. Um, you know, and we certainly see this tension here. Uh, you know, initially when Liana brings this up, you know, Baz takes kind of like a menacing step toward toward Liana. So despite their good relationship, Baz is like, you know, you you're not going to tell anyone about this. Um, you know, though Baz kind of backtracks a little. He's like, well, all right, let me talk to my brother first. Um, you know, and Liana continues to be skeptical about this. She's like, you know, I'm not looking for an apology, Baz. You know, and you, you need to, you need to actually act. You need to do something about this to fix it. Um, so, you know, certainly, uh, an up and down relationship here between the two of the two of them. You know, this is kind of different worlds colliding here as well Baz and uh Baz and Liana you know and you know Liana does stick in here at the end though she does care what Baz thinks about her it's not like she wants um wants tax 
uh, you know, to get in trouble here. She, you know, her and Tax were apparently friends <laughs> before Tax um, was blinded 10 years ago, and the way she's a little um, hesitant about talking about that, and, you know, maybe there was a little more going on between the two of them back in the day. Um, but regardless, it seems like at the end of the day, Liana is going to put her duty over uh, her friendship with Baz. So, uh, you know, something something else for Baz to worry about here. Uh, and then at the very end of the chapter, we get a guard kind of hurrying down the stairs here. <clears throat> uh, you know, Liana initially thinks he's come to take away uh, Gar's dead body, but he's like, I don't, what body? I don't know what you're talking about, but the Duke wants to see both of you immediately. Um, and of course, both of their minds immediately go to, oh, what could the Duke want to see us about? And obviously they're both concerned that the Duke has found out uh, the secret that Baz is actually the one who completed the trials. Um, so they leave with the guard with great trepidation. Though, <clears throat> of course, we find out that is not the case. There is actually a, a visitor to the library with some interesting news. Um, so we, we'll roll right into discussing chapter three here now. The guard brings them to the Torchsire receiving room, which we've seen previously. Um, we went to the receiving room back in part one, uh, and we actually saw the uh, the duel there between Deliritus's aunt and uncle, kind of like our first full introduction to how the uh, the speaker harbor reader trio work in a in a battle um and then we had a discussion with duke Cavanaugh there back in part one where uh we've learned for the first time that baz would be going on the actus trials with deliritus so now we are uh, coming full circle going back to the receiving room and uh you know we spend the first few pages here just kind of setting the scene you know, Duke Octavenal is up there on his, uh, you know, on his throne looking as, you know, uh, you know, angry as ever. You know, his uh, his scowling, his scowling face and his deformed hands and his fine clothing. And he's got his speakers all chained up behind his chair. Um, you know, we notice that uh, Octavenal has apparently used the book that Baz found, or well, that you know, they think Baz found it, but really it's the book that he bargained with Tessa for to restore uh, his influencer's sight. And, you know, Baz has to be careful uh, that no one sees the anger in his eyes. You know, it's very frustrating. He's He found this book that can restore his brother's sight, but obviously he has no way to get at it or use it right now. Um, and, of course, we get our first look at Deliritus here in part two. He's in the throne room as well with uh, Rox and uh, Delida, who, remember, is his other speaker who was supposed to go on the trials with him, but then uh, after she was injured by the cityless at the beginning of part one, Baz had to end up replacing her and going on the trials as well. Uh, Del uh, doesn't seem to have changed too much, still dressed like a dandy in his, his fine uh, giant hat and his his new purple clothing, so, um, so, you know, some things have changed, and some things remain the same, <clears throat> um, you know, but, uh, kind of a surprise here, though, you'll remember at the end of part one, Deliritus basically says, after Baz blackmails him into keeping his secret, Deliritus is like, well, I'm, you know, you can rest assured I'm never gonna use you again for any speakings, but, uh, you know, apparently it's been the exact opposite, um, because he's, um, 
you know, Deliritus as the victor of the trials has kind of become a bit of a, a famous personality all of a sudden. But uh, I guess what neither he nor Baz expected was, well, people want to have speakings from the winning pair, right? They don't want just Deliritus. They want him and the speaker he used to win the trials. So apparently Baz has had plenty of work lately and opportunity to practice his speaking. I'm sure to, to Deliritus's chagrin because he knows what Baz is capable of. Um, so there you go, kind of setting the initial scene here. We got Duke Octavenal up on his throne with his uh, speakers behind him. You know, Deliritus is there with rocks and his other speaker. Uh, and apparently they have been waiting for Baz and Liana to arrive. Um, you know, again, Baz, you know, Baz's true feelings for Liana really show through here because the Duke makes kind of this... Uh, you know, this crass comment about Liana because obviously she's still she's still kind of a mess. You know, she's got the dirty robe and it's all wet, right? So she kind of you know the the same the same way that Baz noticed her clothes clinging to her in the previous chapter, Octavenal comments on here, you know, are you a harlot or a conservator? <laughs> uh and you know, Baz is ready what 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 does he say? You know, he's ready to tell the Duke what he can do with those feathers <laughs> that he's got in his cap. Uh, and Baz almost opens his mouth and says that, which uh, you can rest assured would not have been uh, a good thing for him. But uh, you know, thankfully, uh, you know, Octavenal kind of beats him to the punch here and points out that there's this other trio of of folks in the room who Baz is not familiar with, and it turns out this is Duke Farston Liamina, who is the chair of the Triumvirate Congress. Um, Apparently he's a very wealthy dude, right? He's dressed as nicely as Octavenal, and even his his speaker is wearing a giant ruby on a necklace, right? So, you know, Baz's like, you know, you're putting riches on a speaker. You know, that's kind of unheard of. It's kind of like, I think what what does he say? It's like, uh, you know, you know, you're in the company of a bunch of people who make less money than you, and you're like, you know, freely talking about how much money you make. Kind of that sort of social faux pas, putting such wealth on a, on a speaker. A lowly speaker. Um, also, um, for those of you uh, who are quite observant, you've heard the name of Liamina Library before, uh, because this is where Tessa, the leader of the Keepers in Undertome, believes that there is a copy of the Declaimer's Transcendence. She thinks it is in Liamina Library in the City of Fortune. So, um, you think it's a coincidence that the the Duke of uh, Liamina Library and Fortune has suddenly shown up here in erstwhile? Well, uh, I probably don't need to give you the answer to that, but I'll I'll leave you <laughs> I'll leave you to ponder that here. Um, but what we do, uh, we learn some other things about Duke Farston here pretty quickly. Uh, first, he's on a first name basis with Octavenal, though clearly, at least Octavenal obviously does not like. Farston, so uh, you know maybe a bit of a power play here. Farston omitting Octavenal's title, and you'll notice that Octavenal does use uh, Farston's title. He calls him Duke Farston, even though Farston just refers to uh, Duke Octavenal as Octavenal, um, which is interesting. Kind of like uh, you know, floors Baz because he's never seen anyone take such a cavalier attitude with Duke. Uh, octavenal before everyone's usually kind of frightened of him so seeing a man kind of come in and act like he's above duke octavenal is uh, certainly startling 
Uh, and he's got this weird voice, too. Uh, Duke Farston does, that is. You know, pla- uh, placid yet terrifying, Baz kind of describes it. You know, kind of just, you know, a nice, nice calm voice on the surface, but there's just something about it. And also, uh, it's like you can't help but listen when he speaks. It's like there's some sort of magic in his words where you, you know, you know, he speaks and you like snap your snap your head in the direction of him speaking to, to listen. Um, and he also takes an abnormal interest in Baz, right? You know, uh, Octavinal kind of goes around and introduces all the major players and then, you know, Farston's like, you know, wait a minute, Duke Octavinal. Or I guess just Octavinal, right? You know, you haven't introduced your spe- uh, you know, uh, you haven't introduced everyone yet. And Octavinal's like, well, I, I don't usually introduce property. <laughs> You know, it's like, I didn't introduce you to my chair or my rug. You know, again, just kind of reminding us how uh, how lowly speakers are, are viewed here by the uh, the elite reader class. But, uh, uh, you know, Farston you know, makes this whole scene of going up to Baz and kind of inspecting him like he's inspecting a cow at a at an auction or something. A, a fine specimen octavenal. Um so you know, kind of, kind of strange here, and obviously Baz is very, <laughs> very uncomfortable being scrutinized by a reader like that. Um, but we move on from there. Um, you know, it seems Deliritus is maybe a bit delusional here. Uh, you know, Farston congratulates him on his great victory at the Actus Trials, and as far as Baz can see, there's no, uh, no shame at all. <laughs> In Deliritus, even though Deliritus knows he was not the one who completed completed the trials, um, but of course Duke Farston has not come all the way from Fortune just to congratulate Deliritus. He has brought news uh, of an uprising amongst the speakers in Fortune, uh, at least at one library, at Galfet Library. Uh, so does that does that sound familiar? And it should because we had this uprising. Uh, or apparent uprising beginning at Galfet Library in the prologue. So it would seem that the we have uh, been given context for the prologue here. Um, you'll recall uh, this character, Stefan, was talking to the three uh, speakers at the door of Duke Galfet's chambers in the prologue, and they were intending to go and murder him, and eventually Stefan decided he couldn't stop them. So this uprising that has brought... Duke Farston, who's apparently a very po- important person all the way to erstwhile. Um, you know, we saw the beginnings of that uprising in the prologue. So that's that's what the prologue was setting up here. Um, you know, and, uh, Duke Liamina, uh, or Duke Farston, I kind of call him both of those intercha- interchangeably. You know, he talks about the dungeons beneath Liamina Library and how he personally made sure that all the... Uh, all the rebelling speakers paid dearly, so it seems that Stefan was right in the prologue. You know, you guys are just going to get yourselves killed, and that does indeed seem to be what happened <clears throat> here. Um, you know, and Duke Farston also mentions that, you know, there's this movement to give speakers rights in fortune, and, you know, Deliritus in his kind of naive way. You know, well, there's there's the Triumvirate Consolidation Treaty. That tells us how we're supposed to treat the speakers, what more could they want? And of course, Baz is thinking, well, we don't really have any rights at all under the treaty. Apparently, the treaty says you can't murder a speaker in cold blood, but um, 
bad. It's like, well, but you can just accuse a speaker of anything, and then you can kill them. So uh, it's kind of a, you know, a meaningless right that they have there. Um, but then at the end of the chapter here, we get to the real reason that Farston is here, and apparently a special session of the Triumvirate Congress has been called back in Fortune uh, to kind of address this proposal to give speakers rights, and erstwhile needs to send a representative. And apparently the tradition is that the library, uh, or the current victor of the Actus Trials, uh, the, the library who won the Actus Trials most recently, is the library who gets to send a representative uh, to represent their city. And of course, Torchsire Library is the reigning champion, and apparently Duke Octavenal is too busy with trade negotiations at present to go. So what does that mean? Well, it means Deliritus is going to be heading to Fortune to represent erstwhile at this special session of the Congress. And, well, if Deliritus is going, that means Baz is going too. So <laughs> deja vu for Baz again here. Uh, in the receiving room, he suddenly learns that once again he is going to be torn away from his ordinary life and thrust into another adventure. And um, if we know anything about Baz, we know he does not like <laughs> adventures. So another dark day for him here. Kind of, you know, chapter three transitions kind of immediately into chapter four and Baz, you know, Baz kind of like curses under his breath when he realizes what's happening to him here. And of course, everyone looks at him and is like, what did you say? And, you know, Liana pulls Baz out of the fire here. He's like, oh, he's just so honored <laughs> to be going uh, to the Congress. Um, so, you know, th yeah, Liana, again, still kind of showing Liana looks out for Baz, um, you know, when she can. Um, and apparently the conservatory also will be sending a representative, so Liana excuses herself to go bring news to her superiors at the conservatory so they can select their representative to the tri or to, to, to the Congress. Um, and then, of course, Deliritus is also like, well, I have to get ready to go, so he uh, asks for leave to, to leave as well. Uh, permission to leave as well, and which is given, but, uh, you know, Farston kind of makes this offhand comment about, well, I hope you'll be attending tonight's entertainment, Marquis Deliritus. Oh, yeah, did we notice Mar or Deliritus has a new title now, right? He is a Marquis, um, you know, so certainly um, being recognized a little more now that he's the trial's champion. So, and for some reason, Deliritus kind of stiffens when the Duke mentions tonight's entertainment, so uh, I wonder what that's going to be. Uh, keep that in the back of your minds for a few chapters down the road here. Um, but so Deliritus, Baz, and Rox head off to the reading room to go look for some books to bring with them on this new journey they're apparently embarking on. You know, we see some of Baz's internal dialogue here. He's still trying to convince himself that he doesn't like rocks, right? <laughs> um, but again, you know, you know, kind of, uh, you know, denials, uh, you know, there is truth in denials, right? You know, if you really feel you need to adamantly deny something, then, you know, maybe there's some truth in it that you're hiding from. Um, I guess that's kind of true in real life too, right? You know, if someone is so adamant about denying something that you're accusing them of, uh, you know, there's probably a reason they feel so adamant uh, about it. So, you know, 
uh, layers upon layers here. You know, and once they're alone in the reading room, uh, alone being just, you know, not in front of Duke Octavenal or Duke Farson, you know, Baz does know, you know, Dell's voice does seem strained lately. So, you know, maybe Dell's not quite as deluded as Baz would like to think he is. You know, Baz, you know, not a lot's changed here, it seems, but with regard to Baz's view of Deliritus, he really still just wants to hate him, uh, even though there's maybe some evidence that Deliritus is not just... Uh, content to be walking around taking credit for something that Baz actually did. Um, though we do see that Deliritus has been punishing Baz in kind of uh, subtle but taxing ways here. You know, Baz is like, well, before the Axis trials, I could pretty much get away with anything, and maybe Dell would give me a few sharp words, but that was it. But now it's like, you know, you know, praying to the scribes or scrubbing down the uh, the receiving room or, you know, doing other menial menial labor, so it does seem like Deliritus is trying to assert some authority um, over over Baz here, maybe trying to take out some of his frustration on Baz <clears throat> as well. Uh, but still, Deliritus is trying to include Baz here in the conversation about how they're going to prepare uh, for this new journey, but of course Baz is having none of it. Uh, in fact, he suggests taking the uh, the book that cures blindness with them, right? And Deliritus is like, why would you want to take that? You know, because Baz isn't a creator. He can't he can't use a book that fixes something. He's a destroyer. And then they kind of get into this little squabbling match over, <laughs> oh, well, you just want me to bring that book so you can steal it. Is that it? So you can use it for your brother? You know, and they kind of exchange barbs back and forth. And, uh, you know, eventually Deliritus and, you know, ends up calling uh, Tax, you know, a criminal or something. And Rox kind of steps in between them and, you know, Deliritus! You know, stop acting like a child, even though Baz is probably equally acting like a child here. But uh, interesting to see Rox get in the middle here. Um, you know, and even as Baz is storming out, Rox is apparently giving Baz kind of like this encouraging, encouraging look. So, you know, obviously uh, Rox, uh, Rox hasn't changed here. And, um, you know, Baz is still in denial probably about the change that has gone on with him and his feelings towards the giant harbor here, still very conflicted, but um, you know, it seems we're still going to have this sort of enemies-to-friends conflict slash story progression here going on again in book two, because we really we almost became friends at the end of part one, and then, you know, Deliritus... Uh, backed out of his promise to protect Baz's secret, and Rox revealed that, you know, however much he's come to like Baz, you know, he's still going to support Deliritus in the end, so that kind of obliterated a lot of the progress that had been made between the three of them, um, and I guess we'll see throughout the book here whether they can rebuild that relationship once more. Um, okay, so... Uh, wow, covered a lot of ground there relatively quickly. This is probably going to be kind of a longer <clears throat> episode, but that was our discussion of chapters one through four. Uh, if there's anything I didn't cover that you have questions on, certainly shoot me an email, dtkane at dtkane.com, and we'll discuss that uh, on a future episode, whenever our next analysis episode is. I think next week will just be more narration. We'll uh, be reading chapters five and six. Uh, a few things to look out for here. Baz opens his big mouth once again and meets someone new. But is this someone new a friend? You'll have to read and find out. Uh, we also see some of Erstwhile's 
Factories. What's up with those? Factories. Hmm. Uh, and then we go underground. What's down there? Uh, and why is Baz going there? So there are a few things for you to keep in mind as you're reading chapters 5 and 6. Um, this week we do have a listener question from Jason, one of the, one of the founding patron Patreon members here for the, uh, the DTK uh, Patreon group. And if you're interested in joining me on Patreon and getting free books and your name in my books and an extra podcast episode each month, which uh, I do plan on. Uh, I'll probably release the first extra podcast episode publicly for a couple of weeks so everyone can hear it and kind of get a sense of what they would be getting into. Um, but if some of that stuff and more sounds interesting to you, head on over to patreon.com slash DTKane and you can check out the membership tiers. Uh, membership starts at as low as three ninety nine per month. And like I said, among other things, that three ninety nine a month will get you ebook copies of every book that I release. So, um, you know, obviously you're still paying a little above and beyond probably what you would pay in a year for my ebooks. You know, unfortunately, I can't release, I can't write fast enough to release a book every month. But uh, you're certainly you're certainly getting those, and you're also supporting the podcast in addition to the other extras uh, that you get each month. So consider uh, consider throwing me some support over there on Patreon. Uh, and then, uh, all right, so we'll get to Jason's questions. He, question here. Uh, uh, Jason asks, you are quite active responding to comments and keeping up with posting on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, email, and now even on Patreon. How do you make time for writing? Uh, do you have time set times when you shut the rest of the world off and just hyper-focus on writing? So, yes, thanks for the, thanks for the question, Jason. Yeah, it's certainly a challenge sometimes. Um, you know, discipline is certainly important when, uh, you know, when you're doing any, any endeavor, really, if you're trying to do it well, but I think writing in particular, I find discipline to be extremely important. Generally, my schedule is, um, you know, I wake up probably around six each day and I try to do something productive and, and, you know, something kind of relaxing in those first three hours and something productive, um, so generally I'm watching some YouTube video about something in the morning while I eat a small breakfast. Uh, usually it's about researching, researching some product I'm looking to buy, or, you know, I, I'd like to watch some photography tutorials or something, something like that. And then, um, either I'll do some exercise in the morning, which is running usually, uh, or I'll try to do a little writing, uh, or editing, depending on what phase of the creative process i'm in and then during the week you know nine to five five thirty is my day job where i'm working remotely uh every once in a while i'll squeeze in uh a little writing at lunchtime during the day job though it can often be hard for me to kind of get into the creative mindset during the day when i'm doing my doing my day job um so actually uh, during the days, that's a lot of the time where I'll respond to social media stuff. If I have like a few minutes in between, uh, you know, conference calls or something with the day job, you know, I'll hop over on Twitter, Twitter, or Facebook, and send a quick response out to people who have sent me messages. Um, you know, and that's uh, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not so popular at this point where I have oodles and oodles of messages to respond to. So it's not too not too difficult for me to to get responses out to most people who leave me comments. But yeah, just kind of that periodic checking throughout the day. 
And then, uh, you know, I wrap up shop around 5.30, make some dinner, spend a little time with my wife. And then, you know, probably around 7, I go back up to my office and work for a couple hours, whether it's uh, podcast recording or writing. I mean, those are the two major things. And, yeah, those those are the times I really kind of try to shut everything else out and do some hyper, hyper-focused work. <clears throat> Um, you know, and I try to stick to that routine uh, pretty religiously, you know, Monday through Thursday. Uh, Fridays, usually, I'm just happy to get, like, one productive thing done, uh, whether it's in the morning or immediately after work, and then I usually take the rest of Friday evening off. And then Saturday and Sunday, you know, I try to, um, you know, really between you know nine and five on Saturday and Sunday I still do try to treat it kind of like a work day um, except I don't have the day job so you know I'll usually do a longer exercise routine on Saturday um, and then you know a couple of writing sessions or a writing session and a recording session each day so you know I would say Monday through Friday you know maybe like two two to three hours uh, of work on podcast and or writing each uh, each day, you know, maybe more like just an hour on a Friday. So what is that, you know, eight to you know, nine to 13 hours or so during the week. Then, you know, maybe four, four hours each on Saturday and Sunday, folks just on the writing or podcast. So, you know, what, you know, 20 to 25 hours a week total. You know, it's still kind of a part-time thing at this point. But then I guess you factor in, you know, I'm checking my social media in between stuff when I can. So that was probably a bit of a rambling answer there, Jason. But, yeah, I just think, you know, having a schedule and sticking to it as best you can. But, you know, give yourself some grace, too. So, you know, obviously, if I have a Saturday where I don't really have anything planned out, you know, it's generally, you know, breakfast, long run, and then, you know, three to four hours uh, of writing and podcast stuff before five o'clock and then take the evening off but you know especially during the summer fun things come up especially on the weekends so you know sometimes I get less work done <laughs> on the weekends you know it's just gotta it's a it's a tough balance um you know and it's certainly certainly hard sometimes it would be it would be nice you know very rarely can I finish my day job eat dinner and then just kind of like flop around on the couch and watch TV or something in the evening. You know, some days I wish I could do that. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, what you do each day is what you do with your life, right? You know, <laughs> kind of that's kind of the philosophy I look at. So, uh, um, you know, looking when I look back on things, you know, I'm not going to regret that I didn't watch that other TV show that everyone's talking about, you know, but I, you know, I would regret not having written these books. So I kind of use that as motivation to uh, take it upstairs and get that writing done in the evenings. And honestly, half the battle is just getting into the chair. Once I'm in the chair and I uh, have my, you know, I got my noise canceling headphones here that I use for the writing, put those on, get my writing playlist going, you know, that's half the battle. Once I've got that done, um, you know, it's kind of, often it's easier to get into the groove. You know, just got to get that motivation up initially. And it's easier to get the motivation up once it's, uh, once it's ingrained as routine. So thanks for the question. And as always, uh, if you have a question for me, definitely shoot me an email, dtkane at dtkane.com, and I will answer it on a future 
episode of the podcast. Um, okay, that leaves us with just our fantasy quote of the week here. Uh, this week's comes from Dan Simmons, uh, the author of the Hyperion Cantos, starting with the book Hyperion. Uh, excellent, excellent novel, incredible writing. Um, highly recommended if you uh, if you have not if you have not read them, <clears throat> uh, especially Hyperion, the very first one. Um, and the quote is, Words are the only bullets in truth's bandolier, and poets are the snipers. Um, and then, as always, I wrote my little interpretive essay here, so here it goes. And let me take a quick drink here. <clears throat> All right. Cheese pizza. Pilsner beer, the cap toe Oxford, simple things, boring, some might say, but in today's frenetic society, we often lose sight of simplicity's beauty. Just as poetry thrives on an economy of words, so too should we consider simplifying our lives. How many things, both physical and intangible, Enter our lives that serve no useful purpose, do nothing to further our goals and values. We permit ourselves to hide behind all of this meaningless clutter, and for that reason it can be frightening to clear it away. But clear it away we must, just as shoddy baking can't hide behind cheese and sauce. Poor brewing is magnified by a pilsner's minimal ingredients, and the slightest scuff sullies even the most expensive pair of Oxfords. So, too, can we no longer hide from our inadequacies, fears, and dreams once we are surrounded by only that which brings meaning, purpose, or joy. There is truth in simplicity. Uh... So, hope you like that little essay here this week. And as just a reminder, if you would like to have uh, the weekly fantasy quote of the week and my essay delivered straight to your inbox, consider signing up for my newsletter. Uh, just head on over to dtkane.com and uh, right on the sidebar of the homepage there, you can enter your first name and email address to sign up. I send out one email a week on Friday. It has the quote of the week, uh, some photos of the week, as some of you know, I'm kind of a hobbyist photographer, so I include a couple photos in there each week. The quote and essay is also accompanied by an additional photo each week, usually one that I have taken. Uh, and then, of course, you know, you get a personal update about me, updates on what I'm working on, uh, frequent uh, book deals. Sometimes it's free books from other authors. Sometimes it's deals on my own books. Occasionally, I'll talk about some sort of current uh, news in the fantasy fiction world and you know, kind of a, a variety of other things as well. So dtkane.com, if you'd be interested in uh, getting my once-a-week newsletter. And other than that, uh, that's all for this time. Uh, so until next week, this has been D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. Thanks for listening to D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. If you liked today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're watching on YouTube, 
Give this video a thumbs up if you liked it, and hit that subscribe button and the bell so you get notified whenever new episodes become available. If you'd like to listen to back episodes or review the show notes, visit dtkane.com slash podcast. D.T. Kane's novels are available for purchase at most major online retailers, or you can purchase directly from his website at www.dtkane.com books. You can receive a free short story and sign up for D.T. Kane's mailing list at dtkane.com email dash sign up. If you'd like to connect, you can find D.T. Kane on Facebook at D.T. Kane Author or Twitter at D.T. Kane Author, or send D.T. Kane an email at dtkane at dtkane.com. See you next week.